So this summer, um, our neighborhood had several like uh, power outages. And how many know a power outage is pretty darn inconvenient, right? We, uh, it's first world problems, I get it. The air conditioner wasn't working and the internet had to reboot, you know. But it was like every 15 minutes, boom, power would go out, it would come back on. And they found out it was some sort of computer glitch. But man, that was inconvenient. And it makes you appreciate power when you have it. The fact that we have, you know, electricity and the things that we have. How many have ever... Remember the car, the Pinto. Who drove a Pinto? A Gremlin? How about that? Or a Fiat or a little, you know, these little smart cars. Those things, if you try to take that up into the mountains and try to just go up any hill, you're putting along and cars are just blowing by you and you're going, come on, you got it floored. There's no power. And you appreciate a good size engine that can get you, you know, where you want to be and that power that comes behind that. When we were on an airplane a couple weeks ago, I had this little, you know, I guess seems silly at the moment, but it made a good sermon illustration that we sat kind of right behind the wing and you could see the, the big jet engine. And the thought hit me to think that, you know, these engines can take this commercial airplane up 30,000 feet in the air and sustain that speed and that power for hours upon hours. I thought, man, we appreciate power when we need it, and we get frustrated when we don't have it, correct? So we're in this series called Seven Miles, and today is, is mile five. And if you're new with us, what we've been looking at is, in, in Luke chapter 23, is the death of Jesus. He dies on the cross, and he's buried. In Luke 24, he's raised on the third day, just as he has, had, had promised, and so in Luke 24, after the resurrection, we get introduced to these two disciples who are walking seven miles from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. It took seven miles. And they were bummed because they had just saw their hopes and dreams die on the cross. They just seen Jesus, who they were his disciples, they saw him dead. They didn't get it that he had to die and rise again. And so they're talking with each other and they're sad and downcast. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, comes next to him, and he says, guys, what are you talking about? And they tell him, like, you know, the Messiah uh, was killed at the hand of the, the chief priests, and, and he's dead, and our hopes and dreams are, are gone. And Jesus begins to explain to them from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. But they still didn't get it. And Jesus walks with them for seven miles all the way to Emmaus. When they get to Emmaus, they invite Jesus into their house and say, hey, come have a meal with us. And Jesus goes in and he breaks this bread with them. And all of a sudden, the scriptures say that his, their eyes were open to recognize Jesus. They recognize the glorified, risen Jesus. It says as soon as that they recognize him, he disappeared from their sight. And they looked at each other. And they were like, dude, no, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but they were like, bro, we were just with the resurrected Jesus. Weren't our hearts burning within us as he explained the scriptures to us? And they were like, whoa. And so Jesus disappears from their midst, and we're going to pick up exactly what happened after this. It says that they got up. And returned at once to Jerusalem. So they took that seven-mile walk back to Jerusalem. 
And there they found the 11, the 11 apostles. And they were gathered together and those with them assembled and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he's appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet as I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their their minds, meaning now the disciples themselves. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead. And on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power on high. We need power. In the real world, we need physical power, but you and I need something greater. We need spiritual power. We need a power that goes beyond uh, willpower. I'll try harder or man's power or I'm going to, Huff and puff until I change my character or whatever it is that's going on in our life. We need real power. We need this power. We need power to do life. We need power to love well. We need power to have good relationships. We need power to do ministry and to do what he's called us to do. So what I want to talk about is from this text that we just read, I see five things, five ways that Jesus empowers us. And the first thing I want you to write down is this. How does he empower us? He persuades us with truth. Truth is a powerful thing. To know that you're walking in truth, to know that the gospel is true, to know that Jesus really rose from the grave, that's power in our lives to overcome the most difficult of circumstances. It's it's a powerful thing. When you think about like the Middle Ages, when everybody in the world thought that the world was, was flat, right? That if you went far enough, boop, you just fall off the edge of the earth. And we look back and laugh at it, but that caused all kinds of fear. And it, it, it caused people to, to not explore the world. And once people realized that the world was round, then you can explore all of the world and the vastness of it. I think even to the point to realize that when they used to think that the earth was the center of the, the universe. And, but then realizing how space was we were able to send a man to the moon and explore space and all of that. So people in this day and age don't believe in absolute truth. You figured that out, right? Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And let's try to get along. Yeah. How is that working, right? It's not working very well. The, the reality is we have to, there has to be something that's absolute. In the physical world, I could say, Man, there's no such thing as gravity, and that's my truth, and I believe that there's no such thing as gravity. I don't care what you say. Okay, 
Well, try walking off a cliff and test that, whether there's absolute your truth is your truth. You're still going to squash like a grape. You can deny it all that you want, but truth is truth. The same is true spiritually speaking. In the physical world, there are absolute truths, and in the spiritual world, there are absolute truths. Jesus talked a lot about that. Jesus actually, in his prayer in John 17, said that God's word is truth, that the words that we have are truth, a truth to live by. He said about himself that he was the way, the truth, and the life, right? That he is the embodiment of truth. And to know him, walk with him, was to walk in truth. So important there. In the text that we read in verses 44 and 46, he said that he, he opened their minds to understand the truth, to open, understand the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and die. And the, the thing that we have to remember, putting ourselves in the, sh- the shoes of the disciples and the, the early apostles, was they were waiting in looking for a strong Messiah to make Israel strong again. They were waiting for this general, this warrior to come and, and make the, a, a strong Messiah for the strong. And they didn't know what to do with the fact that Jesus came the first time as a meek Messiah to suffer for the weak. That's important. Now, he's coming again as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is the King of king and Lord of, Lord of lords. Say that fast. But he, he, and he, when he comes again, that's what we'll see. But when he came the first time, he came in meekness and laid down his life. And so if you and I today can accept the fact that we're weak, he came for you and he came for me. He suffered for, for us who are weak and broken and unable to rescue ourselves. Those of us that recognize that we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be strong enough to change and have change in our life, that we need a power that's greater than ourselves. Jesus said in John 8, 32, he said, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Guilt, shame, and fear, those things empty us of power. They empty us, of, they render us powerless, so to speak. We need the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. And it free, when I believe that, it empowers me to, be, to not walk in guilt, to not walk in shame. Shame rears its head all the time in my life. I don't know about you, but it's easy to feel shame and worthless and, and find my identity in people and things and success or whatever. Man, when that shame comes, there's no power that's there. He wants us to walk in the truth, the truth of who he is. The king of the universe, the creator of all things, loves you so much that he came, he died for you, and he rose again for you. And who we are in him and what we have because of him. If you're taking notes, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. So Everything that's Jesus is spiritually speaking has been given to you and I that follow him. Think about that for a second. Did Jesus over, you know, overcome temptation? Did he walk in the spirit? Did he walk in power? So can you, because it's yours. We need to access it. 
2 Peter chapter 1 says that his, his divine nature has given you and I everything we need for life and godliness. You know what that means? You lack nothing. Let's say it together. I lack nothing on three. One, two, three. I lack nothing. Do you believe that? You lack nothing. You've been given everything you need for life and for godliness. Truth is power. When you walk in truth, it brings hope. And there's nothing, there's no circumstances, no trials, no struggles, no circumstances that can take away the hope that we have in Jesus. Because he overcame, we will overcome. Hope empowers us. Truth empowers us. Second way that Jesus empowers us is he satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. He satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. You and I were born with this desire to be loved. Human beings that go without love and are starved of love don't turn out so good. Their lives are empty. We all know it. We, we might act like we, we don't need it, but we were born with a need to be loved, and we were born with a need to also express love. That's the heart of God, is God is love. And he created us with this need of, of, of security that I'm secure in, the, in, 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 in love and not needing to earn it. When we, when we don't realize that we, don't, you know, we have everything in him and that we're secure in his love, he wants us to have that. But people and circumstances and things can't give you that security. Only he can. And so we got to look to him to satisfy the deepest longing of our heart to be loved unconditionally and to, and to know that we're significant. We're significant because he created us. He created us to have impact, to impact other people's lives. This is a, a power that when we have this satisfaction in our heart, we won't look to people to validate us. We won't look to people to find our identity. This helps us overcome our insecurities. If you have insecurities today, and look to Jesus and find your security and sense of self-worth in him and him alone. So how do I get this? Well, Jesus came to the disciples and he said, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. You might be thinking, Scott, that is a stretch of the scriptures right there. How does, do you have anything to eat, equal him satisfying the deepest desires of our hearts? Well, to no biblical culture at the time, to eat with somebody, and you can write this down, that eating is an invitation to friendship and intimacy. Biblically, when, when there would be an invitation to eat, it was, I'm opening my heart and my home to have friendship and intimacy with you. Jesus actually says this in Revelations 3.20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. When we find our, our deepest longings satisfied in Christ, I can't tell you the, the, the most powerful remedy against temptation and sin is this. A satisfied heart, a heart that's satisfied in Christ is a, 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 a mindset, a heart that's not vulnerable to sin. But when you and I are finding our, our, our identity and security and deepest longings in people and things and careers and money, the right house, the right this, the right that. 
we're, we're set up for sin. We're set up to fail when it comes to temptation. So connection and intimacy with Jesus gives us power. It gives us power to overlook people who don't like us and to love them anyway. It gives us power to overlook our insecurities and move away from those things. Trust me on this. The deeper you go in understanding this, the more power you're going to walk in. Success, money, all these things that we think are going to satisfy us can never truly satisfy. That's just the facts because they all can be taken away from us. We need it something that's deeper than, than, than something that can be taken away when we have what we understand what we have in Christ. The third thing, how Jesus empowers us, he gives us joy. He gives us his joy, more importantly, his joy. It says that they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Now, before we judge them, they were just going, whoa, he really is alive. He really is, this risen Jesus really is in front of me. But then their joy and wonder was there for them. In John 15, 11, Jesus says something amazing, guys. He says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Did you catch that? My joy may be in you. Now, Jesus is God, and God is the most joyful being ever. And God, and when he says he's going to give us his joy, think about this. The joy of God is not based on circumstances. The joy of God is unshakable. It's not dependent upon anything or any person. He's joyful because he's God. He's, he's always been the most joyful being from eternity past to eternity future. And it's not dependent upon any person or any circumstance. It's unshakable. That's why the book of Nehemiah tells us the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I pray that over this us as a community all the time. Lord, let the joy of the Lord be our strength. Let the joy of the Lord be our power in our life. We need in this life that we, we live, as painful as it can be, as chaotic as the world we live in can be, we need a defiant joy. You know what the word defiant means? It's to stand up against something, to go against the flow. We need a joy that's defiant against our circumstances, defiant against uh, the, the, the tide of this world. Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is based on God and his promises. So you can have joy in spite of your circumstances. You can have joy in the midst of difficulty. Because it's his joy. And I got to ask you this question. I asked myself this. Where is your joy today? If you had a joy meter, where is your joy? I don't mean a happiness meter. As a Rockies fan, I'm bummed out right now. But thank God my joy is not dependent upon any sports team or the weather or the amount of money in my bank account. Jesus has given us his joy. And are you living in that joy today in spite of difficult people and difficult circumstances? Find your joy in him, and you will find your life empowered in a way you could never understand otherwise. The fourth way that Jesus empowers us is he awakens us to the ultimate purpose for our lives. He awakens us 
to the ultimate purpose for each of our lives. Most of us have regrets. Anybody have regrets? The older you get, you look back on your life and you think, man, coulda, shoulda, woulda, right? And I could have done this. I should have done that. I should have made this choice or if I would have done this. And if you're young in this room, you're facing choices all the time and you'll get older and look back and say, coulda, shoulda, woulda. That's just life. One of my biggest regrets in life is I had a baseball scholarship, school paid for, and I got to play college baseball. And I went, sadly, I went to school just to play baseball. I didn't go to get an education. Like, who cares about that? That, that was my attitude at that point. Little did I know, right? And um, 18, and I knew everything, right? I knew, I knew all about life. And I made a couple of bad choices, and those bad choices led to other bad choices, bad choice, and it spiraled to the point where I look back and think, what was I doing? Like, why did I just throw that opportunity away? And it wasn't until I became a follower of Jesus at age 25 that I realized God was going to work all those bad choices for good. and He was going to work all that for his glory. And those regrets dwindled. But if I didn't have Jesus, man, I would look back on my life and think, what an idiot. What did I do with my life? And I think the fact is, is that regrets tend to come from being trained in the ways of the world that our purpose in life is about finding the right career, the right job, the right spouse, the right kids, blah, 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 blah. We are trained, every one of us, to think that is the purpose of life. But Jesus gives us a purpose that goes so far beyond the right career, job, spouse, etc. It's an eternal purpose. And Jesus showed the early disciples in the early church that they had a greater purpose than just work and play and whatever and how many ever years you get on this earth. And when you start thinking about the brevity of life and how short life can be, that's a motivator to find real purpose. Not just the right career and the right job or the right amount of money. Um, when I was in, at the end of seventh grade, my family moved to Georgia. And I spent eighth grade and half of ninth grade in Athens, Georgia. Now, in Athens, Georgia, I went to Clark Middle School. And so half of our school was basically half African-American and, and half white people. It's the South, right? I kind of lived a little bit of like Remember the Titans, just a little taste of the, the racial tensions of the South and, and how do we get along and how do you do sports together in school and all that kind of stuff. And, and here I was, just a you know, naive little white boy from Arvada, Colorado. Hey, guys, I'm here to play football, you know, and it, they did, I didn't get it. I didn't get that there was tension. And so... Um, in middle, in eighth grade, I made this friend named A. Derry Pittman, and uh, his grandma would pick us up every day after school, and she would take us to football practice, and boy, was she a good cook. She would always bring us like chicken and biscuits or something, a little snack to get us ready for football practice, and we became pretty good friends. Well, we moved back to Colorado halfway through ninth grade, and, you know, I left a lot of those friends behind, and about a year and a half ago, I got a Facebook request from, from Adairy. 
And he sent me a message. Is this you, you know, that lived in Athens? I said, yeah, man. I, so I would thought about him quite a bit over the years. And so we kind of got reacquainted and, and began to dialogue. And he was like, you're a pastor. And I said, yeah. So I've been following Jesus for over 25 years. And he said that, he, you know, he was a Christian too and learned about his life. Well, I found out on Monday that he passed away this past Sunday. And... Uh, he had a heart attack or something. I was pretty bummed out. Like, he was 51 years old. Life is short. And if you don't know your purpose in life, you don't know a greater purpose than just going to work or doing this, you're not living in power. But when you go to work or you raise kids or you do whatever you do with a greater purpose in mind, a purpose that all the other things in life, career, job, marriage, kids, it's subservient to the purpose of knowing Jesus and making him known in the world. That understanding brings a power that nothing else can. To participate with him in spreading the kingdom of God in your parenting, on the job, how you live your life. Jesus told the the disciples, he said that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. He gives us a a purpose that does not depend upon length of life, but the impact of a life. There are people who've lived short lives that have had great impact. Oswald Chambers, how many have ever read My Utmost for His Highest? You've heard it's one of the all-time devotions. Oswald lived to be about 31 years old. His wife just took notes of all his sermons, and after he was gone and gone to heaven, then they put together this devotion of his sermons. So his, he's impacted people left and right. He lived about 30, 30 years. Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1.8, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He tells you and I today, Novation Church, individually and corporately, you're my witnesses in Westminster, Colorado, and to the ends of the earth. It's the same thing. Jesus told the disciples in John 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Guys, that same greater purpose is ours today. The disciples realizing to the point they were laying down their lives, and 11 of the the apostles were were martyred for their faith. I mean, they laid down their lives for a greater purpose. All these other things can be taken away, career, spouse, etc. So say yes to the greater purpose, and you'll live in power. The last thing, the fifth thing, that how Jesus empowers us is probably the most obvious, but he fills us with the power of the Holy Spirit. He fills us with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is behind each one of those, truth and satisfying our our deepest longings and giving us purpose in our life. And joy, the the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Jesus, in verse 49, he said, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So he was making a promise, guys. I'm going to ascend to the Father. And on the day of Pentecost... He poured out the Holy Spirit. The disciples waited in the upper room. And they waited for what the, the fulfillment of being empowered, and clothed with power from on high. And the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God falls upon the disciples. 
Peter goes and preaches a message and thousands of people come to Jesus and the birth of the church happened. And that same infilling and power of the Spirit is available to each one of us today. What birthed the church is still with us right now. Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1.8, read it with me, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Receive power. And then Paul told the Ephesians, he said, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. What kind of power did it take to raise Jesus from the grave? A dead person, a dead body was there. Breathe life back in. What kind of power does that take? Does anybody in here have that kind of power? No. But Romans 8.11 says the same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you and I. That miraculous power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you and I. Let's learn to tap into that, right? So that we walk the kind of lives that he has for us. Not man's power or my willpower or any of that, but God's power. When I read that for the first time, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in us, I went, wow. I wrote it in my Bible. Wow, like, that is awesome. Now, the Bible doesn't say, it's interesting, the Bible doesn't say or command, be indwelt by the Spirit. It doesn't say, be sealed by the Spirit. It doesn't even say, be baptized in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says that we have been baptized into the Spirit by Christ. But it does say to be filled with the Spirit. Those other things are blessings that we receive when we receive Christ. The sealing of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. But being filled with the Spirit is a command that you and I respond to and we participate in says to be filled with the Spirit, to be under the control and influence of the Spirit. The context of being filled with the Spirit, Paul says, um, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, when somebody drinks too much, alcohol is a suppressant. It suppresses reality. The exact opposite happens when you and I are filled with the Spirit. Our, our reality is heightened understanding and sensing the presence of God and what he's doing around us when we're filled with the Spirit, the exact opposite happens. It heightens our awareness. And he tells us to, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God, that the more you and I worship together corporately and individually, that's how we're being filled with the Spirit. We don't come together and sing songs on Sunday just be, to hear Mike sing and the band play. He's leading us, they are leading us to be filled with the power of God, to be filled with the Spirit. Being Those singing and thankfulness and all that are both a means and an evidence of being filled with the Spirit. The Bible says that you and I were recreated in Christ. We were redeemed to do good works, right? Ephesians uh, 2.10. We were redeemed to do good works. Well, this glove is a work glove, Right? And it was created to work. It was created to maybe, you know, construction or gardening or whatever. And so if I want this to work and I want this glove to pick up this little plastic container here, 
If I say, hey, go do your job, pick that up. Come on, man, like do, do what you were created to do. It doesn't work, does it? So maybe, we'll put this in Christian context here just a little bit, maybe what we need to do is, I just need to encourage this glove, right? You are such a good glove. You are you're created to do good works. You're, you're gifted, man. So pick up this container. Didn't happen, right? I think you're tracking with me. Maybe what this glove needs is simply a core group. So if we get some more work gloves around it, and they can encourage and equip and tell him how great he is, maybe I need to yell at it. If you were just more committed, then you would be able to do what you were created to do. If you go to church more, if you were actually in a core group, blah, 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 you'd be able to do what you were created to do. Unless a living hand comes in to fill this glove, it can't do anything. But with a living hand filled, it can do whatever I ask it to do, right? It becomes what it was created for. And for you and I, we can't do diddly unless we are filled with God and let God work in and through our lives. And I'm telling you, it's taken me almost 26 years to continue to realize that God doesn't need me, I need him to do anything in life. It's important for us to understand. Let that burn inside of you. We're that glove. You're huffing and puffing and trying harder to overcome addictions. You're trying to overcome a habit. You're trying harder to be a better spouse. You're trying harder to do this. You're trying harder to do that. You need to be filled with the Spirit of God to do what he's asked you to do. We're going to move into communion. And I want to ask you a question as we move into communion. I know these were killing Janelle. It's just sitting there. Do you feel powerless today? If you were to be honest, do you find yourself running on empty? I know at times I sure do. Are you running on fumes, so to speak? Is the fuel gauge of your heart going, doop, you know, get gas soon. You need gas. Has life drained you? Are you lacking joy? Are you lacking self-control, peace, and the power that God wants for you? Then the simple plea is let Jesus empower you with his truth. Believe it. Let him satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. No person will ever satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Let him give you that ultimate purpose and live it out, his joy and then the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, pray for each one of us to walk in your power, Lord. We admit to you today in ourselves we have nothing. And we repent today of trying to do life in our own strength. Help us to access all that you've already given us. Lord, we confess we don't need more of you. You've already given us everything we need. You just need more of us. We love you in Jesus' name.